Please be seated and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. You'll find the uh, notes in the bulletin or online at our website. And we now return to our study, the book of Ephesians, and we begin a new section. Um, And I thought it'd be helpful, given that we're entering a new section, and we've been out of Ephesians for the last five Sundays, to do a overview of that section. We are entering into um, what some commentators call the household code. Um, And so this morning, a spirit-filled living in the home. Spirit-filled living in the home. I'd like to begin by reading the section in its entirety. It's about a chapter and a, not even a chapter and a half. And then have a word of prayer. So if you'd open to Ephesians chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 22. Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop threatening, knowing that you both, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, that there is no partiality with him. Lord God, as we consider your word for our household relationships, for our conduct in the home, and in the church, we pray that you would give us eyes to see that we would not buck or rebel against your design for us, but that we would see your good hand in this, that we would trust your wisdom, that we would um, be molded by you and gladly adopt your instructions for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So there we've just read 
the household code is probably what I'll call it. I get the term household from back in chapter 2, which we'll see shortly. But I want to remark that chapter 5, verse 22, this may seem obvious, doesn't, isn't chapter 1, verse 1. Um, when you get to in, intensely practical, direct, applicable instructions, it's important to remember that Paul built a foundation of truth leading up to this. Paul doesn't begin his letter with this. He lays out all sorts of theological truth. There's all sorts of instruction these commands assume, they're taking pictures of, they're, they're applying spiritual truth. So briefly, a review of Ephesians. And, and I do this because my goal is not just that this Sunday you'll learn something, but that as you go back and read and reread Ephesians, you might find your way through it, that you might see the structure. So, chapters 1 to 3, the book sort of divides in half. Chapters 1 through 3, gospel truth. Where primarily, there's not commands, there's instruction. This is what God has done for you. This is what Christ has accomplished for you. This is what is true in the gospel and in Jesus Christ. And by very shorthand way, we can consider in chapter 1, Paul lays out the important and tremendous truths that God has both chosen and blessed us God has chosen and blessed us. You remember that long, run-on sentence, that blessing of God starting in chapter 1, verse 3 to verse 14, where he lays out all that God has done trinitarianly for us. He's blessed us in Christ. He chose us. He predestined us. He's blessed us. We have redemption. He's lavished his grace upon us. He has made known to us his will. We've obtained an inheritance. We've received the Spirit as a seal. And on and on he goes. And in chapter 1, we learn God has chosen us in eternity past, and God has richly blessed us. In chapter 2, if you remember, Paul um, gives us two before and afters, two stark contrasts, the first in verses 1 through 10, and the second in 11 to the end of the chapter. And in these two contrasts, the first is individual and vertical. It has to deal with your sin problem, your spiritual death problem, our slavery we learn that we have been made saved. Sorry, God has saved us. He did this by making us alive, by raising us, by seating us with Christ. We were dead, we're made alive. We were in, in, enthralled to this world. He has raised us with Christ and seated us with him. And then, in the second contrast, we realize that he has blessed, he has united us. Sorry, he's united us. So God has saved and united us. Here, we were formerly strangers. We were Gentiles, alienated from God, separated from Christ, having no promises, having no covenants, and without God in the world. And in Christ, on the cross, God tore down the dividing wall of hostility. And we learn the mystery that he's making a new people, neither Jew nor Gentile, but church. He has made us one new man. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. What a glorious truth that is. By the way, one of the pictures of the church is a temple, a building, but I want you to look um, at 2.19. This is part, again, a connection of 
why these household codes. We're also, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Remember that. We'll come back to that point. The church can also be viewed as a household. The church can be spoken of as the household of God. Okay? And then, in chapter 3, we realize and learn that God will reveal his wisdom and supremacy in us, in the church. That's the great point, that God has chosen to show the supremacy of Christ. He has chosen to reveal to the rulers and powers of this world his wisdom, his power through the church. Look at verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose of him who has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So, to summarize, God has chosen us. God has blessed us. God has raised us from the dead and saved us. God has united us one to one another. And he has chosen to triumph through his church to reveal his wisdom and supremacy to the world through us. With that foundation, then, we move in by the hinge of a prayer into the second half of the book, gospel living. So the first Three chapters, gospel truth, now gospel living. Or you can think of it as as application. Or you can do it with verbal moods, imperatives, and indicatives. But gospel living. And and we walked through this. This is actually about synchronized when COVID began and the the shed sermons started. I'm glad to be back here. Amen. Um, With five walks. Paul, Paul's concerned with how we conduct ourselves, our living. I mean, we walked through those. And we were told in chapter 4, verse 1, to walk in a worthy manner, which fundamentally meant walking together, walking in unity, walking in humility, being careful to maintain the unity of the Spirit, building ourselves up in the most holy faith as we speak the truth and love to ourselves. The body grows into this temple by speaking the truth and love. And then the second walk was to walk differently, no longer as the Gentiles do. And here the the theme of transformation, not like this, but this, not this, but this, not lying, but speaking the truth, not stealing, but working hard and being generous, not corrupt words, but wholesome edifying words. Then in chapter 5, the focus was on walking in love seen primarily through sexual purity. And then finally, the fifth walk, Walk as children of light, having nothing to do with the unfruitful works of darkness, but expose them. And then that fifth walk, sorry, the fifth walk is in verse 15. Pardon me. Look careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And that then comes out through three contrasts. The last contrast is with contrasting drunkenness being filled with the Spirit. That's about where we ended up. If you remember, the final contrast, there's three of them, not as wise, but as unwise, Um, not as foolish, but understanding the will of the Lord, not drunk with wine, but filled with the Spirit. 
And I want to slow down here because this is our link to our section. Because so often we can think of being filled with the Spirit as having to do with some ecstatic experience or some demonstration of powers. But in the context here, being filled with the Spirit results in some very important, very mundane things. Look at verse 19. What happens when you're filled with the Spirit? Well, you'll be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord with your heart. What happens when we, when we are filled with the Spirit? We will give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing more antithetical to being Spirit-filled than grumbling and complaining. Rather, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then what's another mark of being Spirit-filled? Verse 21, we submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. Being filled with the Spirit is the opposite of being concerned with your rights and what you want. Rather, we submit to one another. That then becomes the context moving into the household code. In fact, the verb in verse 22, submit, wives submit, is brought in actually from verse 21. The Greek literally, wives to their own husbands. So Paul's picturing the household as a group of relationships submitting themselves one to another. Now that is going to look differently. It looks different for a wife to submit herself to her husband than it does for a husband to submit himself to his wife. But there is a very real sense in which all these relationships are other viewed. All these relationships are for the good of another. And in that sense, it's a mutual submission. And that will play out very differently. God has different instructions for each role in there. But that's how Paul frames this. And we'll come back to that in a moment. And finally, the end of the book, starting in verse chapter 6, verse 10, we have... Um, the armor of God. So for the blanks here, we have five walks, six relationships, six relationships, wives to husbands, husbands to wives, children to parents, fathers to children, slaves to masters, and masters to slaves, and then one holy war. So if you want to try to wrap your head around the second half of the book, five walks, six relationships, one holy war. So let's now go back to the household code in overview. Now Paul's considering six different relationships, and they're all in relationship to someone else. It's wives in relationship to their own husbands, husbands in relationship to their own wives, children in relationship to their parents, fathers in relationship to their children, slaves in relationship to masters, masters in relationships to slaves. That, that's the instruction given and every one of these roles has got different instructions and marching orders so even as we can frame this whole code in a sense of mutual submission that doesn't mean everyone's doing the same thing paul's instructions are very specific very clear which then i want to bring to some consequences one of the reasons why i wanted to look at this now as we are is there are things we're going to miss if we just dive right into each role there are aspects we will miss in the sort of meta-larger sense when we first dive into wives. And so I want to zoom out for a moment, consider some implications, because this notion of household code is all over the New Testament. If you want to jot down some parallel passages, Colossians 3, 18 to 4.1, 1 Peter 2, 18 to 3, 7, 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 15, and 6, 1 to 10, the entirety of Titus chapter 2, 
This is no small New Testament teaching. God is very concerned with our interpersonal household relationships. Very concerned. These these are not small matters. And because of the connection of verbs from verse 21 to 22, I think it's also important to understand that this is another primary means of seeing the Spirit-filled life. Again, what is the mark of a spirit-filled person? Well, in general, a spirit-filled person addresses other Christians with truth, is, is full of song and joy, they're full of thanks and not grumbling, and they're gladly laying down their rights, submitting themselves, serving others in the body. But specifically, what does a spirit-filled wife look like? Well, she submits to her own husband, as the church does to Christ. What does a spirit-filled husband look like? He's, he's willing to die, lay down his life, and serve and sanctify his bride. What do spirit-filled children look like? They honor and obey their parents. What do spirit-filled bond servants and slaves look like? They work heartily as unto the Lord. What do spirit-filled masters and managers look like? They're not harsh, but they're mindful that all of us, in one sense, are slaves of Christ. And again, the marks of the Spirit are not... Fundamentally, miraculous signs or speaking in tongues. They're, by the Spirit, embracing God's design and instructions for us. So let's take a look. I just want to look at three observations, each with two points underneath it. Three observations. The first, when you deal with this entire section, I want you to notice is that each is addressed publicly. Each person, each role is addressed publicly. What do I mean? Each role, the wife, the husband, the child, the father, is addressed in the hearing of everybody else. Each person is addressed in the presence of everyone else. So I want to make one of the first observation then of each being addressed publicly is that we all possess an equal dignity. We all possess an equal dignity. This assumes then that when the entire church gathers together, There isn't a service for masters and slaves. There isn't a service for children and parents. They're all together, which in the Greco-Roman world would be radical. They're all addressed directly with equal standing, equal footing. Consider the implications. That's huge. Jesus' disciples didn't want children brought to him. If you remember in Luke 18, they were bringing even infants, but the disciples saw it. They rebuked them. And here... They're present. They're not pushed off the children's church. They're present. Paul addresses them. He doesn't say, now make sure you remind the children. Children! When this letter is given, it's being read publicly. What does that mean? The children, at least the ones who could understand what's being said, are in the room. They're present. The slaves are in the room. The masters are together in the room And all of these different roles have, in that sense, equal standing and dignity. Let me read what one commentator says. O'Brien, as we have seen, wives, children, and slaves are addressed equally with husbands, fathers, and masters. They each have their own calling before the Lord, which is as responsible, honorable, and important as that of the husband, parent, and master. The Lord to whom everything is to be done is impartial. And slaves and masters, for example, are equally responsible. So from this code, 
and the fact that no one's told to tell someone else are all addressed equally. The assumption is they're present. They're sitting under the word. They are part of the unified church and they have an equal dignity and standing. This is the basis of the statements like Galatians 3.28 that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. Now people oftentimes wrongly apply that to destroy the very content that follows next. The point is in regards to worth, value, honor, dignity, those things are immaterial. Male and female, slave or free, child and adult, equal dignity and standing before God. And these are the things we wouldn't see if we just dove right into wives and husbands and so on. But if you look at the whole section, it's clear all of these different groups are together so that one letter read aloud could address them all. Okay? So we all possess an equal dignity. Point number two, we all share a common responsibility. We all share a common responsibility. Not only does God have a word for you here, no, no one person is going to be able to fit all these roles. And you may be tempted to think, okay, great. Um, there's at least two Sundays here I can skip. I'm so glad the wives will get to hear what they need to hear. I'm so glad the children will get to hear what they need to hear. And you may wrongly consider only some of this is for you. But because this is all done publicly, God not only wants to give you your instructions for your roles, he wants you to hear the instructions for the others. That means it's a common responsibility. Wives not only get their instructions, they get to hear God's instruction to their husbands. Children not only get told to honor and obey, but they get to hear the instructions to their parents, slaves and masters. It's not simply that God only wants you to pay attention to the roles you fulfill. He wants you aware of all the others as well, which implies a mutual responsibility. It implies a mutual accountability. This means all of this is for us. Please don't think, well, some of this is unimportant. God intends all of us to understand all of this because your instructions are heard by everyone else. You know what God has called every member of the household to do. Okay? This also is important because you're responsible because God's streaking directly to you. If you think back to the garden, God gave the command to the man and it does not appear as though he gave it directly to Eve. And so Adam has to pass the information on to Eve. Here, each person is directly called out and addressed by God. That's striking. Normally, people address me to instruct or talk to my children. God here directly speaks to children. He directly speaks to slaves, wives, husbands, which then also means wives, husbands, children, slaves, masters are all directly accountable to God. God's speaking to you, and he's speaking to me, and he's speaking to you. Direct accountability. This is unmediated. And, and third reason this is important for us, we've already seen this, is the church is God's household. The church is a household of households. And if we're to encourage each other, if we're to speak the truth and love to each other, if we're to hold each other accountable, and if we're to exhort one another, we need to know what God has called us to do. And for that reason, I, a man, need to know how to encourage Wives, I need to know how to encourage children. I need to know how to encourage bond servants and slaves and masters. If I'm to speak the truth in love in a timely and helpful way, I need to know not just what God has called me to, but what God has called everyone else to. And the, the roles within the church follow along these same lines. I'll, we'll get more into this in the ABF, but 
Have you considered that virtually all the qualifications for church leadership of deacons and elders are found in the home? Aside from the qualified to teach, hospitable, not quarrelsome, kind. They're all seen in the home. The people with exemplary home lives become qualified to serve in leadership in the church because the church is the household of God. And for those reasons as well, we need to know this. So, so please understand, whatever, however many of these hats you can put on, I mean, all of us to some degree are children, but you, know, you may be out of the home, your parents may no longer be living. God intends all of us to pay attention. The coming weeks, we'll be in here the rest of August and September. Please don't think only some of this is for you. God wants all of us to hear all of this. Okay, so each is addressed publicly. Each is addressed publicly. Second, though, in contrast, each is addressed individually. Each is addressed individually. Um, So the first point to notice here is this. Diversity of function does not negate our dignity. Diversity of function does not negate our dignity dignity, our value, our worth, our standing. We've seen that already. The very fact that they're all together, they're all being addressed in the presence of all shows the equality of value and dignity. Now, our culture assumes that if there's any distinction, we're not equal. That's the basis of all of the laws on abortion is that if a woman's held to a standard a man's not held to, then they're not equal, and that's unjust. Our our culture is, is just drunk the Kool-Aid of the notion that there's any distinction of function, any different responsibility, then one of us is greater, one of us is lesser. A few weeks ago, Pastor Daniel pointed out biblically the, the truth that um, diversity of, of purpose, of function, the, the lack of equality in every area. Men are not fully equal with women. Women are not fully equal with men. I, there are things my wife can do and has done that I can't do. I cannot build people inside of me. She can. We can have a diversity without any loss of dignity. We see that even in our triune God, who is a family relationship. The son is not the father. The father is not the son. They do different things. They take on different roles, and yet there is one God, fully God. Jesus is not lesser than the father. So in the very Godhead, we see a unity, a unity of value, of worth, of holiness, and yet a diversity of function. And so we've got to, as you get to whatever your instructions are, you may not like them, and you may be tempted to think, oh, is that because I'm lesser? No. It is because the God we serve exists in a triune unity with a diversity of work and function and role. And we, we've got to reject the lie that just because God's purpose and plans for you are different than someone else, that makes them greater or you greater or them lesser or you that, that's That's completely wrong. There's a diversity of function. Even as we celebrate this, neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, the people that would use that verse in Galatians to then erase gender distinctions, to erase these distinctions, are, are completely working against the text. This passage shows us simultaneously our unity and the diversity. And the diversity. Um, Jesus is not inferior to the Father because he does the Father's will. In fact, it's his glory. 
that he does his Father's will. Second point, God holds us each individually responsible. God holds us each individually responsible because God addresses each of us individually here. We have no excuse for our failure to obey because some other person isn't doing their job because God called you out. He spoke to you. He spoke to me. And we can't say like Adam, well, this woman you gave to me. What this means then, even though we have idealized roles here, maybe in your home, members of your household aren't Christians. Maybe, maybe your wife, maybe your husband is not a believer. Maybe, maybe your, your situation is difficult and complicated. God is calling on you by addressing you directly. God is calling on you to fully embrace his instructions and commands to you for the best of your ability without excuse. You don't get to say, well, I would do this if my husband would only sacrificially lead or the husband. I, don't, I would sacrificially lead if my wife would just listen to me or children. I'd honor my parents if they were godly and so on. No one gets that excuse because each of us is addressed individually. God directly commands and instructs each role. It's not dependent on the function of the others, right? God holds each of us individually responsible. So by by speaking of the presence of all, there's a group corporate accountability, but by calling each of us out individually without mediation, My God has instructions for me that I need to endeavor to follow regardless of what my wife does, regardless of what my children do, and so do you. So do you. As much as this is a group activity that we're all to engage in, my faithfulness um, is irrelevant to your faithfulness in that sense. I don't get to you, because that's the common excuse we use. I do enough marriage counseling. And people will explain their failure to obey God's commands because of the other person not obeying God's commands. And that doesn't work. Those dogs won't hunt. So diversity of function does not negate our dignity and God holds us each individually responsible. God holds us each individually responsible. Third, point C. Each person is motivated theologically each person is motivated theologically and what i mean by that is as opposed to practically pragmatically oh i do believe that if you embrace god's will for your life there will be blessings that are attended there are good things that will happen to you but that's not the fundamental reason given for this we see in in chapter five with the wives what's the wife's submission to her husband modeled after it's fundamentally, it's to model and picture the church, right? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. In other words, Paul's not first and foremost saying, I think this will be good for you. I think this will help you. I think this will make things work well. I do think those things are true, but fundamentally, it's a theological motivation. Likewise, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. So he might present the church to himself in splendor. Do you notice how this is a theological argument? This is part of the reason why the first three chapters were necessary. Paul has to first teach about the church and about Christ and about that relationship before he can call on wives and husbands to model it. And it may not be as obvious for children, but is not Christ 
the Son of God who learned obedience through the things he suffered. So children can model true things as well and so on. And we'll see that in the coming weeks. But I want you to understand this isn't first and foremost about a helpful pattern for your family. Because if, if you think that, you'll say things like, well, this, this just doesn't work for my family. I mean, this may work for many households, but in our household, we prefer to do it this way. That's not first and foremost what this is about. These are not first and foremost practical, pragmatic, utilitarian instructions. They are theological, which means whether or not you'd prefer to do it a different way. And I've heard that before, husbands and wives. Well, we just prefer to work things this way. You end up with a matriarchy, but hey, everyone's happy with it, right? Well, except God. Except God. Because Paul is not coming at this like, well, here are some wise principles. This is theologically grounded. It's tied to theology. These instructions do not originate with man. Paul's going to quote Genesis 1. He's going to go back to the creation account. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God made us and he intends us to image. That's actually the next point. Our household relationships are designed by God to image truth about God and the gospel. That's why we cannot redefine these terms. That's why we can't negotiate. That's why we can't say, well, actually, in my marriage, it works better this way. With my children, it works better this way. We then distort the picture of God's truth he wants to image. Husbands who do not lead sacrificially warp the picture of Jesus Christ. Wives who resist submission to their husbands warp the picture of the church. And on it goes. This isn't fundamentally about a good or helpful system. In the first instance, I mean, this is what's so remarkable of Paul's instruction to husbands, right? Look down at uh, verse um, 30 of chapter 5, right? No, 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. What's he quoting? The end of Genesis 2. Moses' summary of what he's just told, the, the first union between man and woman, between Adam and Eve. And then Paul says this, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That, that, that's mind-blowing. What that means is, in Genesis 2, when God created marriage, when he brought the woman to the man, it was first and foremost done that God might have some picture with which to describe and compare his relationship to his church. I mean, just stop and consider that. Let me, let me try saying this another way. God created marriage, I believe, ultimately, for many reasons, to end aloneness, to help populate the earth, yes. But what Paul's saying here is God made marriage so that he might have a metaphor and a picture to describe the church's relationship to Christ. So that when Israel became unfaithful, Ezekiel would have pictures of marital unfaithfulness to call upon. How bad is it when we're unfaithful to God? It's kind of, if you've ever experienced the, the pain of an unfaithful spouse, Ezekiel says, that's kind of how bad it is for God when you're unfaithful to him. Marriage exists so that picture could be made. 
And marriage exists so that when Paul is trying to describe Christ's relationship to his bride, the church, he can say it's, it's, it's like that. That's how foundational these things are. God created these structures in order that he might have images and pictures to describe grander realities. That, that's jaw-dropping in its implications. And it also helps explain to us why God takes this so seriously. Um, this isn't fundamentally for us or about us. We get the honor and the privilege to picture an image Divine, sacred gospel truth to the world. The question is, will we convey that image accurately or will we distort it? Will we display it accurately or will we distort it? Well, I'm trying to make up for some of the last weeks going long. (laughs) Um, I'm going to call the worship team up here in just a few moments for a final song, but I just want to challenge you as we go through this. Regardless of your situation, Regardless of how many of these hats fit on you, I want you to, as we go through the next couple weeks, to pay attention. God God wants you to know this. God wants you to hear this. Not only for your good, but for the encouragement of others. And not only for your household, but for the church, which is the household of God. These are not small things. We have so many excuses about privacy and about our homes are the center of our disciple-making and our spiritual life and how we conduct ourselves there is of utmost importance. God is intimately and intently concerned and we would do well to hear him. Let's close in prayer and we'll call the worship team up. Lord God, I pray that in the, this week and in the coming weeks you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see that we would receive your word and your instructions for us that we would not buck against them that we would not grumble and complain that we would see your good purpose and the immense privilege we have to image something true about you to the watching world. It's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen.